This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. Jonah the prophet, uh, the disobedient prophet who um, is struggling with a call that God has given to him uh, to go and do what God has called him to do. And we, we resonate with Jonah because in many ways we struggle with the call that God has given to us. We, like Jonah, instead of wanting or being willing to do what God asks us to do, it's easier to catch a, a boat to the beautiful place of Tarshish. Um, but we know that God loves Jonah and he loves the Ninevites. And there's, a, there's this tension here because Jonah's not following the call. And God is willing to go to great lengths to get uh, Jonah to the Ninevites, but also to get to Jonah. And we just see the extent of God's love and that he is pursuing him in this powerful way. Um, prophets are supposed to speak, to speak to the people for God. And there's an aspect for all of us. Maybe we don't feel like we have a prophetic voice. Um, and remember, uh, prophets are not just talking about things that are going to happen in the future. Most of what they talk about is calling people back to faithfulness to the Word of God. And so for each of us, there's a prophetic role that we have in the families that we exist, in the workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, is to say, what does it look like for us to be prophetic, to point people back to the Word of God, and to live in such a way that we would be faithful to God's covenant relationship that He's established with us? Each of us has that prophetic role. And each of us are like Jonah when we struggle with that call. When do I speak up? And how do I speak up? And so my hope for us as we're studying the book of Jonah is that we're living in that tension of the struggle. What is my role to have a prophetic voice? And how can I be obedient to what God's calling me to do? Because when we walk in obedience to the Lord, there's always blessing. Uh, There's always usually challenge and difficulty, but there's always blessing. So my hope for you this morning is that you would uh, enter in and uh, live into that obedience to whatever it is that God's calling you uh, to do. So let's now turn to Jonah chapter 1, verses 11 through 17. This is the word of God. Please stand with me if you're able. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the body, the belly of the fish, for three days and three nights. The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. 
Father, we thank you for your holy word that reveals your character and your goodness. It also reveals our character. And we pray that as we encounter your holiness and your justice and your righteousness, that we would be moved to worship you, that we would be moved to respond in obedience to the call that you've given to us. Give us uh, the courage to obey what it is that you're telling us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if I've ever told you this before, but there was a time in my life when I was a big-time Florida Gator fan. It's true. I moved to Orlando in 1980, and I just got swept up into the wrong crowd. You know, I had some friends that were Gator fans, and they gave me a t-shirt. I actually went to the Gainesville to watch football games. Saw some good ones. But then I had a change of heart. I had a change of heart. My brother was at Florida State, and I went to visit him, and I just, you know, the Lord revealed to me what was right and good, and so I became a, I became a Florida State Seminole. Um, isn't it, was it like that for you? You had a team, maybe, and then you got converted to another team, and, and uh, there was a long season in my life when the Gators were like the Ninevites to me, right? Those pagan people living in Gainesville, and now I'm, I realize that, like, getting a college education is good. And it's helpful that there are different kinds of schools with different teams, and we want to encourage that. And yeah, we're rivals on this athletic field, but I want the University of Florida to flourish, and I want the University of Memphis, and I know you want Mississippi State to flourish or Ole Miss to flourish. You know, I went, I went from preaching to meddling right there, didn't I, right? Hook them horns. Right, we want students to be educated. So we begin to have this change of heart. Well, in the story uh, this morning, in the true story this morning, we're, we're getting a sense that Jonah's heart is changing a little bit towards the pagans. His heart is, is changing, not a ton, but some. You know, we know that uh, Jonah, he hasn't really cared for the pagan people up to this point in the story. Uh, he doesn't care about them. He's rejected God's call for him to proclaim the mercy of God to the Ninevites. Uh, so far in the story, when he's, when he's on the boat with the sailors, he hasn't done anything to help the cause, to uh, throw the things off the boat, or to row, or to do anything, or even to call out to his own God. He hasn't done anything. He has the freedom and the power to intervene, to stop the judgment of God, but there's nothing that he's done. And you know, he's, what his actions could have taken is lead these pagan sailors to repentance, but he's ignored that call. He's not concerned about them. He's only concerned about himself. He's not even concerned about the people that God cares about. And so now in his journey away from Nineveh, he's got these other pagans involved with him. Now, they don't know the Lord either, either right? Because remember, they call out to their gods. They're not calling out to the Lord. Here comes the storm, though, the storm that God hurls at Jonah with an intention to get his attention and to show him his holiness and his justice, to show everybody that Jonah is walking in disobedience. And so they're struggling and striving and straining against the sea. Verse 11 says, What shall we do to you, the sailor speaking, that the sea may quiet down for us? Because the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Right? Remember this, this great storm that was as big as an entire city. At this point, it seems that, that Jonah somehow is having a change of heart. He recognizes that the reason why these men, 
are perishing is because of the actions or the inactions that he has undertaken. That their livelihoods have been thrown overboard. And it's a distinct possibility or likeliness that they're not going to make it. He knows it's his fault. And so it seems in some way that his heart is beginning to change. Before, they're just ignorant pagans who had no value to him. They're a means to an end. Just these people that are going to help him get to the place that he wants to go away from the presence of the Lord. But he's beginning to realize that his decisions, that his actions are affecting their lives and livelihoods. It seems as his heart is softening. He says then in verse 12, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. He knows that if he's off the boat, their lives will be spared. While he doesn't say call upon the name of the Lord as he should, the one who can stop the storm, the one who can really truly save them, he does tell them what to do to address the problem that they're in to deal with the storm. Now, Jonah, he doesn't repent himself. He's not appealing to the Lord. He does begin to see that his actions have harmed the people who are around him. Notice he says, the sea will quiet down for you because of me, this storm has, be- has come upon you. There's a sense in which he's taking responsibility for his actions. Remember that he had rejected God's call to go to Nineveh because he didn't want the despised Ninevites to be brought into the family of God. How could God save them? They're evil. He was unable to see their worth because of his hatred for them. They were other to him. But now when he's looking face to face to the pagan sailors who are just as far from God, coffee talk? They're just as far from God. His heart begins to change. He has a a change of heart. He's seeing them. And he's seeing the damage that he's caused in their lives. Is it the fear that he sees? Is it that he's brought this calamity to them? Is it because they've treated him with dignity? And he has not. Leslie Allen writes, The character of the sailors has evidently banished his nonchalant indifference and touched his conscience. He's finally coming to realize that they are dying for him when he should be dying for them. But you think about this, just notice the, the posture of the sailors even, instead of just grabbing him and throwing him into the sea or even just killing him, what do they do? They start rowing, trying to get back to dry land. They're still trying to use their own power to defeat this storm and not take it out onto Jonah because they don't want him to die. They are the ones who are living with character, living with love in a difficult situation. Jonah is doing the bare minimum to solve the problem, but they fail. They can't pull against the wind and the rain. They call out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Notice they're using the covenant name of the Lord. This is a big shift for them. They were crying out to their gods before. And now they know because the Lord has brought this punishment down upon Jonah that they need to call out to this Lord. 
the one who can stop the storm. But they do so without even a word of encouragement from Jonah. What kind of prophet is this? What kind of a person who who knows the Lord of the universe, and yet when faced with a challenging situation or a darkness or a struggle, does not even call upon the name of the Lord himself, much less point the people who are in that storm with him to the covenant Lord. But in Jonah's request to be thrown overboard, uh, Tim Keller notes that the, the pity that Jonah has on the sailors has aroused in him, he says, an elemental human intuition. Namely, that the truest pattern of love is substitutionary. Jonah is saying, I'll fully take the wrath of the waves so that you don't have to. True love meets the need of the loved no matter the cost. All life-changing love is some kind of substitutionary sacrifice. Think about this. Uh, Being a, a parent or even being a grandparent or even being an aunt or an uncle, your life becomes reordered around those people that God has entrusted to your care. When they wake up, you have to wake up. And you can't go to bed until they go to bed. When they need food or clothing or a bath, you're called to give up your life. You have to give up your schedule. You have to give up your agenda in order that these people who have been entrusted to your care might be able to flourish. That is substitutionary love. It is putting up what you want, giving up what you want in order for another person to experience the flourishing that they need to have so that they can experience happiness, that they can experience joy, or sometimes even survival. And see, what's so hard is that much of what culture defines as love today is the way I feel and how I'm cared for. If someone treats me well, I say I've been loved. But true love is how much I'm willing to care for and to serve others. That's the measure of love. Um, Last week, I was able to hear a a professor and author speak, a guy who wrote uh, a book called Strange New World, um, and his name's Carl Truman, and he's a professor at Grove City College, and he was here uh, doing a guest lecture uh, at a school at MUS, and we uh, listened to him speak on Thursday night. And it's a fascinating book. Um, it really, he, he addresses in the book how our culture has changed so significantly with respect to understanding gender and identity. He asked the question in the book, how did the world arrive at its current disorienting state of identity politics And then how should we respond as the church? So he goes through and looks at how the philosophy of the last 200 years, how the advancement of technology has shaped and formed the cultural moment in which we reside, and how things have just been turned upside down. It's a fascinating book, Strange New World. If you want to read it, I encourage you to do so. I have a copy of it. Chapters 3 and 4 have way too much philosophy in it for me. But if you can make it through that, it's an excellent book. Just to understand, how did we get here? But as he was talking about uh, in his lecture, he was talking about love and and what is love. He shared an example of, uh, imagine a man and a woman who are getting married. It's their their wedding day. And they are so in love because this culmination of their their getting to know each other, their engagement, all the planning of the wedding, everything that comes to pass, it's such an exciting time. And they stand uh, in the church or in the barn these days, wherever they are at their venue, and 
There's the minister and all their family members and friends, their attendants, and they're so in love because this is the culmination of, of a wonderful thing. We were in Orlando uh, last weekend for Brandy's brother's wedding, and it was just a great, a great experience to see uh, Zach, Brandy's brother, get married, and we're just so thankful, and, and we celebrate this new marriage. It's like they're in love. But then he was, uh, Dr. Truman mentioned a friend of his who is a professor who's been married for a very long time, and his wife has a debilitating disease, and she can't care for herself at all. She needs care 24 hours a day. And so he's shifted from being a professor, from doing research, from writing, uh, from doing all the things that he loves to do, to caring for his wife. And so when is he more in love? On his wedding day? Or in those days when he's alone with her, caring for her? What is true love? And certainly we can appreciate and, and celebrate the love that a young couple share on their wedding day. But this is the kind of sacrificial, self-giving love that says, I'm in it for the long haul. I'm in it when, when the gowns aren't beautiful, when the, when the family's not there and the party's not about to begin, but when we're just together caring for one another. That's the kind of love that is substitutionary. That's the, the true love that we're talking about. And think about this. Anytime you're, you're giving up something, that's an aspect of substitutionary love. When we take time to listen to someone who needs an ear, needs someone to engage with and to, to talk with, like you're giving up your own time. And, and there are people that you have in your life, when you see them coming, you go, oh no, 30 minutes is gone right now, I can tell you, maybe an, maybe an hour. Or the phone rings and you're like, oh, hello. Because that person is in great need. And what you're doing is you're saying, when you answer that phone and you take that call, you're saying, I love you. I know you need someone to talk to. And I know you've needed someone to talk to a long time. And it's the same issue over and over again. And I wish you'd get over this. But I love you and I'm going to listen. I'm going to care. I'm going to take time to enter into that vortex where time stands still as I listen to you because I love you. Because you need someone to talk to. And that's what substitutionary love is. And that's what it means for us as followers of Jesus to enter into the storms of life, to the pain that people experience, to give them a place to talk or, or to meet their, their spiritual need or maybe even to meet their financial need or their, their physical need. They need support. They need someone to help them move something or to care for their home. What are those ways that we can engage the people that are in our community in sacrificial, loving ways. You see, love is not just simply looking at a landscape and going, oh, I love that mountain. Oh, I saw a sunset at a beach. I love that. Oh, I love this meal. Sure, it includes those things. But love is giving up something of ourselves. And somehow Jonah is now making a shift here. <laughs> he doesn't have perfect motivations. He's not really doing it for the right reasons. But there's a shift here. There's a change that's happening. And this beauty, this love that we see, that we give of ourselves so that someone else can experience joy or flourishing or even happiness, this kind of love is obviously most beautifully demonstrated and lifted up in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus left the glory of heaven, came not only to point those of us who live in darkness to the light, but made a way for us to live in the light through his death 
and his resurrection. Jesus actually says in the Gospel of Matthew, I am one who is greater than Jonah. What he's saying is that just as Jonah sacrificed himself to save the sailors, so Jesus would die to save we who were far from God. When Jonah came near to death and went into the water, Jesus actually died and went under the weight of our sin and punishment. There's this beautiful similarity to to Jonah um, and Jesus. A theologian named Jacques Ellul writes this about casting Jonah into the deep. He says, at this point, Jonah takes up the role of the scapegoat. The sacrifice he makes saves them. The sea calms down. He saves them humanely and materially. Jonah is an example of the Christian way. What counts is that this story is in reality the precise intimation of an infinitely vaster story and one which concerns us directly. What Jonah could not do But his attitude announces is done by Jesus Christ. He it is who accepts total condemnation. Jonah is not Jesus Christ, but he is one of a long line of types of Jesus, each representing an aspect of what the Son of God will be in totality. And if it is true that the sacrifice of a man who takes his condemnation can save others around him, then this is far more true when the one sacrifice is the Son of God himself. It is solely because of the sacrifice of Jesus that the sacrifice of Jonah avails and saves. This beauty of what Jonah has done points us to what Jesus does ultimately. Through his death, we are saved from the storm of God's wrath and are set free from sin and death. Jesus substitutes himself for us, which is a beautiful and a glorious thing. And when we truly understand this, It leads us to worship. Look at verse 15. It says, So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The men eventually stopped rowing in their own power to save themselves. They realized, we're pulling and straining against the storm. We cannot save ourselves. They don't have enough strength to overcome the storms. They need the sacrifice of Jonah to be saved. Does that sound familiar to us in any way? We cannot strive and struggle and and fight against sin. We need a substitute for us to be saved. So they pick up Jonah. They hurl him into the sea. The same word as hurl the storm and hurl the cargo. They throw this guy off the boat as if their life depended upon it, and it did. And the sea ceased from raging. The storm stopped. It went away. The wind was gone. The rain stopped. And the water was calm. And then they worshipped. You've heard of the term uh, foxhole Christian. A foxhole Christian is a person when in the midst of the war, in the foxhole, they're the person who says, the storm is raging around me. I'm going to serve God no matter what. God, if you just stop this storm. But these men are saved from the storm And then they worship. They realize uh, that the Lord, that the God they didn't know is the Lord, the one who has the power to calm the storm. Before, when the storm raged, they were afraid, it says. These accomplished sailors who uh, who knew the risks were afraid of a storm because it was a big one. But now the storm is gone. The sea is calm. And they are, it says, exceedingly afraid. They fear 
for their souls because they know the God who is has calmed the storm and they are in his presence. They make a sacrifice. What would they sacrifice? Everything they had of value had already been thrown off of the boat. Whatever they had left, what was most precious to them, that they had said, I will not throw this off the boat. They say now, Lord, we give this to you. The thing that is the most important, Lord, we give this to you because you are the God who is. They make vows, not while they're in danger, but while they're safe. It reminds me of that story of Peter when he cast the net into the boat and he sees Jesus and he realizes that he's afraid of Jesus because he has such great power. Jesus is the one that can calm the storm. We should not be afraid, brothers and sisters, of the storm. We should not live in fear of the wind and the rain and all the consequences thereof. We should fear the Lord because he is the one who has power over every single storm that you are facing. He has power over every single storm that our city is facing. That place where you're afraid, where you feel insecure, where you have anxiety, where you are wondering, Lord, what is going on? You can place in the hands of God because he is the one who controls the storm. Will we, like the sailors, make a vow? Will we commit our lives to the Lord? Will we say, Lord, everything we have is yours. We'll give it to you because you are the one that we should fear. You are the one that we should trust. Not the things that we face in this world. Not the struggles and the burdens and the budget and the city and the violence. We should not be afraid of those. We should fear the Lord alone because he is the one who rules over everything. And when we know that, when we believe that, then we worship we rejoice and we take action to make a difference in this world. We take on our prophetic voice that the Lord has given to us as bearers of the kingdom, as members of his family, as people who know the living Christ. We have a message to proclaim to the world, not with swords loud clashing, the song said, but with deeds of love and mercy. And friends, that's what our city needs. It's what our city needs. See, they understand now that the Lord is the God of all creation. They know that he controls the wind and the waves and that his anger was directed at a man who was disobedient. And you see, unless we pay attention, this can slip past us. Our God of love and mercy and grace and joy and hope can be angry when his followers are failing to do the things that they're called to do. And he loves this world around us enough because he wants the world to hear and to see the good news of Jesus. And he loves us enough to send a storm into our lives to shake and to rattle and to make us consider, are we really serving the Lord in the way he would have us to serve? Are we walking in truth? Are we doing what God would have us to do? I mean, why would God go to such trouble to get Jonah's attention? Is he just mean and vindictive? Is he petty? No. Is he that self-important that he would have his name proclaimed to the Ninevites, that he must hunt down Jonah? Yes. God is self-important. He is self-centered. Why? Because he is the most glorious thing in all of the universe. And he knows that when the universe and when the people, his people, are aligned with his purposes... They will live in a flourishing way. And the most beautiful demonstration of that is Jesus, his substitutionary love that flows from Jesus' people 
as they make sacrifices for the sake of the world around them. They make vows, they make commitments, and they say, we are willing to give up everything for the sake of the kingdom. See, his name is that important. His name is that worthy. He knows that the only shot that Ninevites have is when his chosen man goes and speaks to them. So he'll do whatever it takes to get Jonah to that mission. God commands us to respond in obedience, and he'll do whatever it takes to get our attention. Like you, the last few weeks have been really difficult for me. The emotions that we've had, uh, the fear, the hurt, the anger, all of the things that we felt because of what's going on in our city, and all of the other things that we are just dealing with as the normal white noise that affects our lives has come to a head in these acts of violence, confusion, hopelessness. Everywhere I go, I'm talking to someone. I'm at a football game and it comes up and just processing and talking and crying. There are no easy answers. And the pain that we feel is real. And the fear is certainly understandable. And every single one of us and everybody in our city is going to process these things in different ways. We need to give each other time and space to talk about it, uh, to come together as the people of God and to, and to process, to pray and to share and to explore the hurt that we felt. We need to continue to pray for those who've been directly harmed. I didn't have a personal relationship with any of those people, and there are many times I've just been crying and feeling so sad for my brothers and sisters in this community. And certainly we must hold accountable people that perpetrate crimes. Justice must be done. But I ask myself the question, am I like Jonah? Do I see the other as someone who is beyond the reach of God? Someone who would never change. So I'm not even going to try. You know, I know a few people who are saying, I'm getting out of Memphis. I'm leaving because of this reality. And each person, I understand, needs to do what the Lord has put upon their conscience. But I'm not giving up on Memphis. I'm asking myself, what am I doing to understand how a 17-year-old guy begins to say, this is a good idea for me on a Wednesday night. Or a guy who says, after being 16, year old, 16 years old, grabbing someone, thinking, this is a good option for me. I'm asking myself the question, how can I live in a city where I'm not thinking about and addressing the problems that get to these realities for people? What are the gifts and skills and abilities that I have as one person to engage and to try to create a culture of flourishing and of hope for the gospel. And that is going to be different for every single one of us. But you see, we who have the word of God, we who have the Savior, Jesus, each of us has an opportunity to enter into the storms of life and to say, what's my role? It doesn't have to be public. It doesn't have to be online. It's a small, loving action that we take that communicates the love of God through the person of Jesus Christ. What is the role that I have? What is the role that we have? Because you see, when I see people who have been part of the justice system since they were 10, 11, and 12, I say, there's something that I can do to help a 12-year-old. I may not be, know what to do with a 28 or 30-year-old guy, 
But I know there's something I can do to help an elementary school kid or a middle school kid who's caught up in this system before these kinds of realities become something that they want to do. What is it that I can do? What agency can I support? Who can I pray for? What person can I encourage? It's going to be different for each one of us. But friends, there's a storm. There's a cultural storm. There's a storm of violence. There's all kinds of storms. You name it, there is it. And yet we've been called here in this moment, in this time, to say we are called to take on our prophetic voice with deeds of love and mercy. Do I have a change of heart when I see the people who are dying? What does it look like for me to share Christ with those in my community, to pour Jesus into my city, to show them that there's a reason for hope and that the hope that I know that maybe hasn't gotten down into their life yet is something worth living for? What's my role in that? Jonah was able to save these men by giving himself up. Was he completely pure in his motivations? No, you don't have to have pure motivations to say, yes, Lord, I'm going to do something. But he laid down his life, and what happened? Those men were moved to worship. They saw the God who is. They saw the Lord of the storm. It changed their world. And changing our world is going to take sacrifice. It's going to take listening. It's going to take conversation, shedding tears, giving up something valuable, giving up our comfort, facing our fear. It will be costly. But won't it be worth it? When we see people who are far from God lay down their lives in worship and become followers of the one true king, what would it look like for that to take place in our city? I want to be part of that. Then there's this verse 17. This doesn't make sense to us. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. You know, as I mentioned at the beginning of the series, uh, the, the writer of the story doesn't really make a lot of hay with this, this reality. Many people get hung up on saying, well, did you really believe that he went into a fish? Well, Jesus did, so I do. I don't know how it all worked out, but we know the author is not emphasizing this reality for much gain. It's only one verse in the whole story, but notice this. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days. We know that our Savior was in the belly of the earth for three days. And he rose again to bring light and life and hope and flourishing and joy to people who are in the midst of the storm, to you and to the world that we live in. It's my prayer that we say, Lord, help me, help us to be obedient to the call that you've given to us to proclaim the good news in word and deed for his sake. Will you pray with me? Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.